0: to realize and embrace is that their God, the one they claim as God, and of course other people claim as their God other gods, but the one they claim as their God is in fact the one true God. How many peoples in the ancient world, how many peoples today claim as their God one who is no such God? But they claim as their God, the one true and living God, as do we. Wow, what a tremendous privilege to be brought to know the one God. First uh, Kings 8, 59 and 60, this is in Solomon's address after the temple had been built. He says, May these words of mine, with, with which I have made supplication be, before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that the peoples of the earth who worship other gods, so that they may know that Yahweh is God. There is no one else. I mean, doesn't that just resonate in your own heart? Don't you long? Where did the mosque go? It's over there, right? Over there. Over there. Uh, don't you long for those people to know that Yahweh is the true God and that uh, the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the true God. So indeed, this is such a beautiful statement from Solomon. We want the peoples of the earth to know that Yahweh is God, there is no one else. Isaiah 45, 5-7, what an amazing statement here uh, that, uh, that then bleeds right into providence. We won't get into that today, but uh, that's, a, that's a part of this statement. But in verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me there is no God. This is not too difficult to understand, is it? It's pretty straightforward. I will gird you, though you have not known me, a reference to Cyrus, who hasn't been born yet, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Boy, it's just absolutely clear-cut, this affirmation of monotheism. Isaiah 46.9, another beautiful statement. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Now, I particularly like this verse because it puts together in one verse two complementary truths about monotheism. One is that God is exclusively God. Do you see that in the first phrase? That is, uh, after after he said, remember the former things? I am God and there is no other. I am exclusive deity, says the Lord. But then the other phrase, I am God and there is no one like me. He is incomparably deity. No one can compare anything with him. So he is exclusively God and he is incomparably God. So indeed, the Old Testament, this is a sampling of passages. We could look at a hundred more. A sampling of passages that indicate the Old Testament commitment to monotheism. Now, when you come to the New Testament, does that change? Do we go from believing in one God to believing in three? I mean, at one level, you know, you realize how long it took for the church until the 4th the century, and really the end of the 4th century, as we'll talk briefly about that in a moment, for them to uh, solidify their understanding of the Trinity, when you realize how difficult that was, It is just astonishing to me that you do not find in the historical record of early Christians anyone who proposed seriously uh, that we move from monotheism to tritheism, right? Right? I mean, it, and this is especially remarkable, not only because the doctrine of the Trinity is a bear, is difficult to, to come to terms with, how, how, how God can be one and three, but also because all of the peoples in the Greco-Roman world that surrounded those Christians were polytheistic. I mean, Greek had its pantheons of, of deities, right? Greece, Greece did. And, and so you just re- realize how natural it would have been to say, you know, we used to believe God was one, but now we believe he's three. But that did not happen. The monotheism that God drilled into His people. I mean, you think of the pedagogy of God. His teaching methodology. Well, it's very clear. Old Testament, He wanted them to get the point. There's one God. There's one God. You get it. Once that's well established, then He goes on to tell them, and that one God is three. So... In the New Testament, they did not give up monotheism, they retained it. Here are just a few statements that uh, I think help us see that. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, the only true God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things and we exist for him. One God, only true God, one God. These uh, statements in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, and then Romans 3.30, Romans 3.30, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one at the end of that statement on justification by faith, and he want, Paul wants them to know that the, the same God who justifies the Jews by faith is the same God who justifies Gentiles by faith. There is one God who justifies all, Jew and Greek, who believe in Christ. James 2.19, you believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So, I, I, again, a number of statements in the New Testament that assert that God is one. Monotheism then continues. However, monotheism is revised in the New Testament. It does move from simple monotheism to what we might think of as complex monotheism as we move to Trinitarian monotheism. So we we are neither, as Christians, we are neither Unitarian monotheists that's Jews, that's Muslims, right? One God, one person. We are neither Unitarian monotheists, nor are we polytheists. That's Hindus and, uh, and animism, and you. I mean, you name it. Uh, that's the predominant religion in the world is some version of polytheism, that there are many gods. Well, Christianity is neither one of those. It is neither Unitarian monotheism, nor is it polytheism. It is Trinitarian monotheism. Trinitarian monotheism. That is a complex version of monotheism in which that one God is three. Now what led Christians to affirm that? Well, here's just a sampling of some of the the biblical data that led to this. One thing that was crystal clear to everybody in the early church, and hence there never was a council to, to decide this because it was just known and, and, and believed by everyone, and that is that the Father is God. The Father is God. This was never disputed. This was affirmed. In fact, it was affirmed so strongly that it was this conviction that the Father is God that led to the main heresies, Trinitarian heresies of the early church. If the Father is God and God is one, then we can't say Jesus is God. You see, that, so the heresies really stemmed off of this uniform Christian conviction that the Father is God. I mean, clearly this is the case, and it was never questioned, as asserted in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 that we just read. We, but for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Uh, I mean, and you think of, of Jesus' disposition toward the Father. Who did Jesus honor? The Father. Who did Jesus pray to? The Father, who did he encourage us to pray to? Pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Whose will did Jesus obey? It is my food. This is John four thirty It is my food to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Father, uh, whose, uh, uh, yeah, whose will did Jesus obey if not God his Father? So there was a uniform conviction among Christian people, that the Father is God, the Father who sent Jesus, the Father who, who, uh, who, whose will Jesus obeyed. Not my will, but yours be done, says Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Indeed, the Father is God. But it doesn't stop there. The New Testament also affirms, and the early church came to this conviction as well, it took, it took work you know, to, to kind of formalize this, more on the history of this in just a moment. But the early church also affirmed Jesus is God. Well, do the math. You're realizing something something is happening here that's going to be hard. One God, the Father's God, Jesus is God. I mean, right away you realize this is not going to be easy in figuring this out. But it, it, it's, it's very clear that the New Testament affirms that Jesus is God. And here I know it gets very interesting because... Uh, For many reasons, but among them is this. For even some of the very passages affirming that there is one God raised questions in the minds of the early Christians about Jesus in particular and his relation to this one God. So take a look at a couple of those passages again that I mentioned earlier that speak of, New Testament passages speak of the one God. So, for example, John 17, 3. This is the full statement. I only gave you part of it before, right? Here's the full statement. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I sometimes call this the power of chi. That's the Greek word for and. Think of the word and in that sentence. What does it do? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and. I mean, think Old Testament about the concept of knowing God. You know, you you, you don't add something to knowing God when you talk about the sunum bonum of life, the great good that there is, the, the greatest goal that we should have as as the people of God is to know God. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, right? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the mighty man boast in his might, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows Me. This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God, put a period there for goodness sake, but you don't, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does that do? Well, it does two things. It indicates on the one hand we're talking about two persons. There is God who we understand from many, many passages in the New Testament. Theos, the word God in the New Testament, is most often used of God the Father, although we're not told that explicitly. But here's a good case in point where God is set is said against, as it were, Jesus Christ, so, so this has got to be God the Father. So there is one God, the Father, uh, um, uh, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. So one, one thing that and Jesus Christ does is it signals there are two persons. There's God the Father, and there's His Son, Jesus Christ. But here's the other thing that it does. It not only distinguishes them from each other, it also shows they are equal. There's an equality to know, dot, 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 Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, is eternal life. Well, that's, that's, that's a quality that you would only ascribe to God. Only, only knowing God would bring eternal life. But now, knowing Jesus Christ brings eternal life. And so it must be the case that though Father and Son are distinct, the Son is equal to the Father in being God. There is no way that knowing Jesus Christ could bring eternal life unless He was God. So indeed there is both this distinction of the two, they're distinct from each other, but equality of the two in fact, even identity, in the sense that both are equally God, the identically one God, has to be the case for for Jesus and, and for His Father. Look similarly in 1 Corinthians 8.6. Again, I only used part of the statement with you a moment ago. The first part, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. But it goes on, and... Now, wait a minute. Again, you know, Genesis 1.1, there's not an and after in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There, there, it, it isn't in the beginning God and <laughs> created the heavens and the earth. But here we've got a God and, right? So there is for us, but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So again, what you see is there's a distinction between father and son. That's highlighted, right? Father is father, son is son. In other words, he's not not saying that Jesus is the father. As you know, I have at least three names. I'm Bruce, I'm Mr. Ware, and I'm Jody's husband just the three, three names for the same person, right? And, and, uh, so, and the reason you know that is because anything you say about Bruce, you'd also say about Mr. Ware. Anything you'd say about Mr. Ware, you'd always also say of Jody's husband, right? So you know, oh, so Bruce is Mr. Ware. Mr. Ware is Jody's husband, right? That's not what's going on here. It's not that the Father is Jesus Christ. No, these are two names for two distinct persons, and yet... Equality, each of them is responsible for what only God can do, namely, create. They both have attributed to them here creation. Only God can create. We know that from Genesis 1.1. Only God can create. But notice here, here's another another hint, and much more on this as we uh, walk through this together. Uh, in the conference that we'll have. Notice that, yes, they both create, but notice there is a distinction in what Father does in creating and what Son does in creating. You can see it by looking at the prepositions. The prepositions. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. You see it? from the father through the son ha ha from the father through the son so creation designed by the father executed by the son you know we have an architect and we have a builder pretty simple we 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 have one who who from whom creation comes from the father and one by whom it is brought into existence. I mean, it brings to mind, does it not? Genesis 1 How did God create? What did he do, literally? What did God do to create? Say it loudly He spoke. He spoke, right? So there is this Word of God, which next brings to mind John 1. That's the next verse I have on here, right? John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Do you see it? It's from the Son. So how does God create? By His Word. I mean, it's interesting. In John's prologue, He refers to the Son of the Father as Word, but that only occurs in the prologue, in John's Gospel. All the rest of John's Gospel, the regular, uh, you know, just constant reference to the, the second person of the Trinity is the Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. I mean, it's always Son. Never again in the rest of John's Gospel do you have John referring to that One as the Word. Only in the prologue. Why in the prologue? Why not start, in the beginning was the Son. The Son was with God. The Son was God. Because He has in mind Genesis 1, Right? That's why Genesis 1, in the beginning in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. Word. Because how did God create? Then God said. Then God said. Then God said. Then God said. All the way through Genesis 1. So God spoke. So God's speaking activates creation. What is the what is the means by which that activation of creation takes place? By the Word who is the Son. The Word, John 1.14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. So indeed, it is the, the agent, the, the Word is the agent of the Father in bringing forth creation. So again, what you see is... Distinction, Father and Son are distinct, but Son does what Father does. Son creates, only God can create, and hence Son is equal to Father, identical in nature, though distinct in role or function. That seems so very clear here, does it not? So, uh, John John 1, 1 and and, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 are quite parallel then in terms of how, how, well, actually it's John 1, 1 to 3, you know, I mean, because you have to bring in verse 3, all things came into being by Him, by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the Son is the agent of bringing into existence creation. Now, by the way, let let me just mention real quickly, I'll talk about the Holy Spirit here in just a moment, but... um, there is also a role for the Spirit in creation, right? And, and the role of the Spirit is, I take it to function as the life-giving force of, bring, of bringing to life everything that the Son creates that is to have life. I, I, one of the reasons I think so is because Genesis 2.7 seven. So God breathed into Adam. He made him from the dust of the ground. Right, shaped him into a man, and then breathed into him the breath of life, and he became and he became a living soul. So you have that sense of the spirit breathing life into Adam at that point. But it's also because I think it makes most sense to understand, track me, track with me on this, to understand the spirit's role in re-creation, to as it were um, mimic. What happens in creation? So in recreation, it's very clear that the Spirit is the life-giving force. Right? He, he regenerates. He, he's associated regularly with water in the Old Testament. Streams of living water that bring life to what otherwise would be dead. So the Spirit is the life-giving, the regenerating Spirit. So I think likely the Spirit is used, uh, or is employed, as it were, by the Son for bringing forth life. So we've got Father creating, I'm sorry, Father designing, Son implementing that in creating it, and Spirit being used as it were by the Son as that life-giving force within creation. At least I think that makes sense. Okay, back back to the Son. Other really quickly here some evidences for the deity of the Son, John 8, 58, a very uh, amazing statement from the Son, before Abraham was, I am, referring back to Genesis, I'm sorry, to Exodus three fourteen, where um, Moses says to, t- says to God, when I go back to the children of Israel and I say to them, who sent me, who shall I say, sent me, and God says, tell them, I am sent you, so here is Jesus, before Abraham was, I am, declaring to be Yahweh. The Redeemer of Israel, Yahweh of the Old Testament, in particular the God who came to redeem his people. So I, th- I think the, you know, the, the one who appeared to Moses in light of John eight fifty eight is likely the second person of the Trinity, is likely the son. So we, we talk about theophanies. Uh, I think this is probably a Christophany, that is a, an appearance of the Son to Moses as he comes to redeem the people of Israel uh, out of bondage in Egypt as a, a type of the greater redemption that will come when he comes to redeem his people through his death on the cross. Uh, Mark 2, verses 5 to 11, when Jesus heals this boy, this, or this man who was uh, lowered down through the roof, but he does that by saying, first of all, Your sins are forgiven. And they say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chalk one up for the Pharisees. They got it right. It's one of the few times you'll find they got it right. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Absolutely. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus forgives sin. What do you say about Jesus? He must be God. So indeed, he is fully God, and then in Hebrews, I just put verses down here if i 'm ever in conversation with someone that could uh, know, like jehovah 's witness or someone like that, uh, when I need, need quick quick support for the deity of Christ, I go to Hebrews one because there are at least a half a dozen categories. I mean, each one of them is a category of passages, but it's signaled in Hebrews 1 for the, for the deity of Christ. So, for example, in Hebrews 1 verse 2, He's the creator through whom also He made the world. And he had, he, in uh, verse 3, He said to be the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Well, th- think of that statement earlier about God who is incomparable. He cannot be compared. And here is one who is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Well, He can only be God. There's no other explanation. Uh, chapter, uh, v- chapter 1, verse 3b, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not only created everything, but He holds it all together. Uh, that only God can do that. Verse 6, uh, God commands angels to worship the sun. Do you think that God knows that only God is to be worshipped? Do you think he's clued in on that? I think he knows that, right? God knows that only God is to be worshipped, and yet he commands the angels, worship my son. What does that tell you of the son? He's got to be God. Uh, Verse 8, of the son, he says, thy throne, O theos. Theos, the Greek word for God, is used here, of the son. And then in verses 10 to 12, it quotes from Psalm 102, 25 to 27, that speaks there of the eternality and immutability of God. I mean, honestly, I would never have thought in reading Psalm 102 that those verses, 25 to 27, are Christological. I never would have seen it. But here it is, quoted by Hebrews. Who knows better, me or the inspired writer of Hebrews? So indeed, this is indeed the, uh, the eternal, immutable God is the Son. Okay, so the early church came to the conviction that Jesus is God and the Father is God. In time, they also came to the conviction the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, th- think, for example, Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, where Peter confronts Ananias in the selling of the land, and he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then just... Following that, he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. So, indeed, he understands the Holy Spirit as God. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, where Paul speaks of only the spirit of man knows, knows the thoughts of a man that are in him, even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Well, if the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God, he's omniscient, and hence the Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are a temple of God. The Spirit dwells within you. Think of temple in the Old Testament. That's the place where God dwelt among His people. Well, now d- God dwells in us by His Spirit. So the Spirit is God. And then Hebrews 9.14 speaks of the eternal Spirit. He offered Himself up, that is, at the cross Christ gave himself up through the eternal spirit. So he has the attribute of eternality, an attribute only God has. So indeed, the spirit likewise is God. Now add to that, I mean besides the specific teaching of the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, add to that what are sometimes called triadic passages. Passages that put together Father, Son, and Spirit in a context of the one God. So, for example, baptism, Matthew 18, 19, and 20, is to be performed in the name singular. Here's the significance of that. One name, one nature. One nature of one God. Who is that one God? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Even the, the and of the, and of the, uh, indicates this is not like Bruce, who's Mr. Ware, who's Jody's husband. It isn't three names for the same person. It's sig- signaling three persons, each of whom has the same nature. Not three names for the same person, but three three different names three, three three names for three persons, each of whom has the one undivided divine nature, or think of the uh, the benediction that Paul gives at the very end, the last verse of second corinthians. 13 verse 14, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you. There's another case where God is shorthand for God the Father. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, uh, the, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you. So there is, it's a way of saying may God be with you. But a Christian way of saying that is may Father, Son, and Spirit be with you. So the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, well, that, that's a sampling of biblical support. Now, moving on quickly to what happened in history in terms of coming up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, there's a lot of prehistory before 325 uh, that, that is going on. A lot of discussion about how to put this together. Uh, and what, one of the uh, uh, most forceful models that was out there was proposed by a man by the name of Arius, who was later declared to be a heretic... And Arius proposed that Jesus was the first creation of the Father. The Father created the Son and gave to him great power, great, great majesty. And the Son then was given power to create the world. But, but he nonetheless was not the eternal God. There was a famous phrase that went around uh, describing the Arian view, uh, that, that w- w- which when speaking to the Son, it would say, there was a time when he was not. Referring to the son. There was a time when he was not. Well, you would never say that of the father. The father is the eternal God. So, a council was called by Constantine that met in Nicaea in 325. He was just recently uh, the, the, uh, the Roman emperor and he wanted to unify the empire. So, he called this council together and uh, uh, one of the heroes of that council was a man by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius won the day against Arius. He also won the day against Sibelius. He was another, another person who was influential uh, leading up to the, Nicaean, the, the, the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Sibelius uh, held what is sometimes called a modalistic view of God. That there is one God, and, the, and God is Father, Son, and Spirit. But here's, here's how it works. the God is first Father, then, then He appears in the mode of the Son... So actually the Son, as He appears, is the Father in the mode of the Son. And then He ascends back to heaven and He comes in the mode of the Spirit, modalism. So actually the one who died on the cross was the Father, just appearing as the Son. But it's actually the Father. That's why there, there was a heresy in the early church called Patra Passionism, the passion of the patra, the Father, Patraposianism was a heresy because it was modalism. It viewed that actually the one suffering on the cross was not the son per se, but it was the father. That was a modalistic view. Okay, so Sibelianism was rejected. Arianism was rejected. Athanasius won the day at Nicaea and proposed a view that the son is, this is a coined term, a term that was coined for this purpose. The son was homoousios. You see, I have it there for you. I hope I spelled it right. Yes, I did. Homo usias. Homo, like homogenized milk, all one thing, right? Mixed together so you've got cre- cream and skim, all the same, it's all the same stuff, homogenized. Did you know it doesn't come out of the cow that way? I'm wondering with uh, anybody under about 30 years old, you may not know that. Anyway, uh, homogenized milk, all one thing. Well, homo usias, one thing. Usios, nature, same nature, one nature. So the idea of Nicaea is to affirm that the Son's nature is the identically same nature as the Father. It's not merely the same kind of nature, divine nature. It is the same nature as the Father possesses. And hence, one nature, one God. The Father is God and the Son is God. Now at Nicaea, did we go to 10 after, did you say? Ten after uh, at Nicaea, though they they just al- they had almost no interest in the Spirit yet because they had to settle the question of who is Jesus. What what is Jesus' relation to the Father? And that got settled at Nicaea. But you might remember the Nicaean Creed has three three. Um, um, there's a word here that's not coming. Parts. That's not the word. Um, that'll have to do. Uh, three parts to it. Um, we believe in God the Father, maker of all things, visible, invisible, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the third article, that's it. The third article of the Nicene Creed merely says, this is 325, we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. That's it. That's how much interest there was at 325 of figuring out the deity of the Spirit, until they figured out the deity of the Son, they can't go further. Okay, but after Nicaea, now this is settled. Christ is understood as God. Now the issue became, at least one of the issues, became, what about the Spirit? And so in the, in the next 50 years or so, there was a huge debate that took place. Arius himself died in 336, just 11 years after the council at Nicaea. But his followers kind of took up the charge in trying to argue against The deity of the spirit. And and so another council was called at that point. And at this council in Constantinople in 381, here are the main things that happened there. Uh, First of all, there was a view called Apollinarianism uh, that uh, was rejected by the church, by by the council at Constantinople. That Apollinarian view was docetic. Docetism is the view. It comes from a Greek word, dokeo which means to seem or to appear. And the docetism view then said that Christ merely appeared to be a man. He, he looked like he was a man, but he wasn't really a man. See, Apollinarius wanted to honor Nicaea. Christ is God. He is God. And he could not comprehend how he could be God and man. And so the Apollinarian view was rejected, and it was affirmed that Jesus Christ was fully God and man. Fully man as well. Okay, that that's, relates more to Christology. But on Trinity, uh, the Arius' followers were rejected. The ones who, who argued that the Spirit is just an impersonal force of God. Kind of like electricity, you know, that runs the wires, runs the lights in the room. I mean, it's just an impersonal force. It, it doesn't have personal qualities. And that was rejected at uh, Constantinople as well. And the heroes here, remember the hero at Nicaea was Athanasius, the heroes of the council at Constantinople were three men who are called the Cappadocian Fathers. Now I didn't put their names down for you, Uh, they they are, just for the record, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, makes you nauseous saying that, doesn't it? Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Caesarea. And uh, those latter two were brothers. Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea were brothers. They were the heroes of this council, and they argued for the deity of the Spirit. And what they did was add to the third article of the Nicene Creed five clauses. So now, if you you know if you look at a, a hymnal that might have creeds in the back or or something uh, that would would have some of the main creedal statements of the church, and you look at the Nicene Creed, it probably is the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, because the third article will say this, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son are worshipped and glorified, or maybe that's is, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the Prophets. And each one of those was meant to be a support for the deity of the Spirit. Lord, only Jesus... I'm sorry, I should back up. That wasn't right. Lord, Jesus is Lord. Well, so is the Spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18. So just as Jesus is God as Lord, so the Spirit is God as Lord. Lord, uh, we believe the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, regeneration. That's something only God can do, giver of life. Who proceeds from the Father. That's from John 15.26 that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, they would argue just as the Son is begotten of the Father. So there's a parallel relationship between the Son's relationship to the Father as begotten, the Spirit's relationship to the Father as proceeding. So Son and Spirit then are on equal standing. Son is equally God, so is the Spirit equally God. That's how that argument went. Uh, who with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified, they they understood the baptismal formula of Matthew 28:19 to support that. Namely, if you're baptized, this is an act of worship, and you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, indicating the Spirit with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified. And then who spoke by the prophets all through the Bible, we see the Spirit is the one. So it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one. Uh, is, is the one who produces the Word of God through the prophets. So, the spirits, then, his, his role as God was affirmed at Constantinople. Here is a Trinitarian definition that is Augustinian. Augustine uh, wrote the classic summation of Trinitarian understanding in a treatise that took him 19 years to write uh, from 400 or 401 to 419 AD. And here's, here's a Trinity, an Augustinian uh, definition of the Trinity, God's whole and undivided essence or nature, the nature of God, which by the way is the collection of all of the essential attributes of God. Holiness, righteousness, uh, goodness, wisdom, knowledge, power, all of the essential attributes of God are contained in the essence of God or the nature of God. God's whole and undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three persons of the Godhead. So that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each is fully God, while each is his own personal expression in role and activity of the one eternal and undivided divine essence. So, bottom line, you could read that again later, just to kind of think it through. Bottom line, One essence or one nature of God that is the full possession of the Father, the full possession of the Son, the full possession of the Spirit. Not three gods, but three expressions, personal expressions of one uh, undivided divine nature. Uh, Here's an illustration that came to my mind when I was teaching our daughters, uh, our, our two daughters when they were young. And I was frustrated and tried to teach him about these things because illustrations of the Trinity are notoriously uh, heretical. Well, I, I think this works. If it doesn't, I'll, I'll uh, fight out from the Lord one day, but I think it works pretty well. And it, it goes like this. Imagine a whiteboard behind me, and I take a blue marker and draw on the board a big blue circle. So you have on the board one circle that is encompassed by one line a blue line. Now take a green marker and overlap the blue line exactly. You draw on the board a green circle that overlaps the blue one exactly. So you have on the board one circle that is encompassed by a blue line and a green line. So the blue circle is the green circle, but the blue line is not the green line. Now you take another marker, a red, and overlap exactly. So you have on the board now Three lines that encompass the identically same circle. So the green circle and the red circle and the blue circle are the identically same circle. But the green line and the blue line and the red line are distinct expressions of that circle. So it's something like that with the Trinity. One nature, one nature of God, but three distinct expressions of that nature. All right, now let me, I'll let you read on your own the next three paragraphs because uh, we'll pick up here tonight. Uh, but let me just read the very, fu- the very last paragraph, bottom of the page, and with this we'll close. Um, this we will do. That is ta- talking about the Trinity more fully. Focusing our attention next on distinctive relationships and roles of the Father with the Son. That's what we'll look at tonight in our uh, session this evening. And then on Monday night, followed by the distinctive relationship of the roles of the Son with the Spirit uh, in, in the Monday night session. In doing so, may we see more clearly something more of the greatness and glory of the God whom we know. May we see that the one God is one only as he is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may this triune God receive honor, praise, and glory due to his name alone. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get, a, get an overview, Lord, of the history of this doctrine. And we pray that as we look more uh, closely at your word in coming sessions, we would just marvel at the greatness and glory of who you are as the triune God. We pray in Christ's name, amen.